So there's going to be um, two uh, lectures. Today's lecture is going to be on the topic of moral appraisal in the sense of how should we think about people who have implicit biases. Uh, I'm going to concentrate on racial implicit biases. Um, so the question might be, given that it's plausible that a majority of people in this room would have negative implicit biases uh, towards black people. Are you racist? Or I've done the IAT, I can ask it of myself. Am I racist? Next week's lecture is going to be on not moral appraisal, but uh, moral accountability. Uh, are we responsible? for having these attitudes? Are we responsible for changing these attitudes? And are we responsible for uh, actions which are partially caused by these attitudes? I want to separate these questions. To some, it's hard to, uh, to do to some extent because uh, we think worse of people, we appraise them worse, we think worse of what they are on the basis of what they're responsible for. Um, but I'm going to try to separate these questions. So let me begin by motivating the question. Why does it matter? Um, what are implicit biases? What are implicit attitudes? Why does it matter whether we have them? Uh, how is all this morally relevant? So here's some good news. Over the past 40 years, probably 50 years, Explicit racism has declined dramatically. I'm talking here about largely about the United States. Generally, I'll be talking about the United States just because uh, most of the data comes from the United States. But there's quite a bit of data about Western Europe, the UK, Australia. Um, uh, so all of what I say very probably general, generalizes to other white majority uh, developed countries, and for that matter, probably to some white minorities, uh, some white minority countries like South Africa. Um, so in these countries, and in the US where most of the data comes from, explicit racism has declined dramatically, uh, as measured, for example, by surveys. So uh, one way, the, the, the easiest way to measure explicit attitudes is to ask people, can think of explicit attitudes roughly as the attitudes that people express sincerely, what they take themselves to have and what they report uh, that they have when they're reporting sincerely. So for example, in uh, 1970, uh, if you asked white Americans in the southern states, uh, are there circumstances in which you would vote for a black president? About half said no. There are no circumstances in which I would vote for a black president. Um, by 2012, that had declined to 8%. So uh, that's a dramatic decline. If you ask a more direct uh, question still, are some people better than others, more capable, more intelligent, uh, more valuable than others, just in virtue uh, of their race, uh, that approximately, you know, rounding uh, down, 
around 0% of people say yes to that question uh, in surveys. There are a few, uh, and that number does bounce up and down a little depending on uh, uh, what people have made acceptable to say in public, but it's always very low now. So that's good news. Now, no doubt the explanation for that news is not entirely that people's uh, racism has vanished or declined dramatically. There are other explanations at work. For example, uh, what psychologists sometimes call self-presentation effects are probably playing a role. People uh, want to be thought of uh, in a certain way. Uh, they want um, social approval and they don't want to be seen expressing uh, opinions that they think are uh, socially unacceptable. So to some extent these kind of forces probably play a role in people's um, explicit judgments. But uh, pollsters uh, take steps to minimize that. They have anonymous reporting, um, for example, to minimize the effects of self-presentation effects. And um, given the, how dramatic the decline is, it's unlikely that self-presentation effects accounts for uh, all of it. Even that proportion it does account for. It's quite interesting that racial attitudes, you know, racist attitudes, are now seen as unacceptable. That in itself reflects a big change in social attitudes. All right, so explicit racism has declined dramatically. At the same time, um, racism persists, or at least racial disparities certainly persist. Um, and the explanation of those racial disparities plausibly cites racism. Um, you might think of the events that precipitated the Black Lives Matter uh, movement in the United States. You know, if, uh, if you watched any of those videos posted of um, police officers uh, assaulting or shooting uh, black people, disproportionately black people, um, it's very hard to avoid the conclusion that racism plays a role in what's going on. And of course racial disparities uh, are glaring. Um, stunning fact in the United Kingdom, the proportion of prisoners um, who are black is actually higher than the United States. Now, of course racial disparities have explanations other than the persistence of racism. There's no doubt that if racism disappeared, all kinds of racism disappeared now, we wouldn't wake up to uh, a world without racial inequality tomorrow. Uh, institutions have inertia, um, poverty, which may be explained uh, by historical racism, but nevertheless will persist even if uh, racism were to disappear. Uh, poverty will continue to uh, disproportionately uh, affect uh, minority communities, for example. So the explanation of racial disparities certainly isn't racism today. Uh, that is, it's certainly not the case that racism today explains all those disparities. 
but it almost certainly explains some of it. Here's some evidence uh, for the persistence of racism, not just um, structural racism and not just uh, a reflection of the fact that resources are uh, distributed unevenly across communities so that on average you might expect a white person to be uh, better qualified than a black person. But what looks just like racism, um, the CV studies which have been done in a variety of ways, in a variety of countries, sometimes in labs and sometimes using um, uh, real job ads. What they do standardly is to, I'll just use the, the real job ad variants, is they apply for jobs. The experimenters send in CVs to real job uh, advertisements. And then they measure the number of invitations for interviews or callbacks that the uh, applicants, who are in fact made up, receive. What they do to ensure that it's race that's playing a role is to keep everything constant across conditions. So all that's changed on the CVs is the name. Uh, a stereotypically white name like uh, Emily and Gregory are apparently stereotypically white names uh, in the United States, or stereotypically black names like um, Lakeisha. Um, but everything else is the same because all the, uh, the manipulation is, is changing the name. So the applicants have the same qualifications, the same uh, experience, um, but the white applicants and this, this has been done uh, not just for black versus white, but uh, East Asian versus white, uh, and male versus female. White applicants are more likely to get called for an interview than black applicants. Male applicants are more likely to get called for an interview than female applicants. That looks like racism. All right. No doubt there is explicit racism in the world. Um, and no doubt that probably plays a role in some of these decisions made by, say, HR departments. But it's likely that implicit racism plays a role as well. Rather than tell you what implicit racism is, let me first describe some of the ways in which it's standardly measured. I'll describe the, the IAT, the Implicit Association Test, which is by far the most popular way of measuring uh, implicit attitudes, and I'll also describe one other uh, method. There are a number. The Implicit Association Test works like this. Uh, you sit in front of a computer and your task is to press buttons, uh, a button on the left or a button on the right of the keyboard. When the stimulus picture or word comes up, which is in uh, one of the categories. And the categories are pairs. Uh, and they're drawn from, uh, on the one hand, sticking with racial uh, IATs. They're, they've been done for lots of different um, categories of interest. But thinking with racial ones, one pair is black versus white. And here the stimulus can be a photograph. I, uh, 
real photo of a real person, it flashes up on the screen, you are to press one button if it's a black person and another button if it's a right person, sorry, a white person. Um, the other category is negatively and positively valenced items, often words. They can be pictures, but they're often words. So, for example, positively valenced words, this is just words to which people uh, have a positive uh, attitude, which, by the way, has been measured in, in piloting uh, independently. Ask people. You think this is a positive word or uh, a negative word? And you can collect data on this. And you only use words on which there's very widespread agreement that this is positive, this is negative. Positive words, flower, health, beauty, uh, sunshine, puppy. Uh, negative words, uh, gun, cancer, fear, spider, uh, vomit. Uh, these are negative words. So, you're sitting in front of the screen and you get an instruction. The instruction might be, if a black face or a positive word pops up on the screen, press the uh, key on the left. If a white face or a negative word pops up, then press the key on the right. And you have to do this as fast as possible. Um, and you don't have... Uh, much control over this, if you don't respond in time, the, um, the experiment simply moves on. And you get blocks of this. Across blocks, the conditions change. So block one, the way I've set it up, it's a black face or a positive word, left key, a white face or a negative word, right key. Second block, that'll be reversed. Black face and uh, negative word, left key, um, and white face, positive word, right key. Um, and all the categories are moved across so that it, it won't be black on the left key every time, it won't be right on, on the, uh, sorry, white on the right key every time. They'll switch across categories. Um, it's important to note that because uh, you can worry about order effects, which one you do first might have a, a big influence on, on your subsequent, perform subsequent performance. And you can worry about uh, training effects, where you just get better at certain kinds of the, uh, tasks. It's important to note that which one goes first uh, is varied across people. So some people get black negative, white positive on their first round, and some get the opposite, black positive, white negative. And the much repeated finding, there is hundreds and hundreds of IATs out there now. Uh, by the way, I encourage you to do one if you've never done one. If you Google Project Implicit, uh, you'll find the Harvard website where they have a number of um, well-designed IATs uh, designed by experimenters who are at the forefront of this kind of work. Um, the much repeated finding is that a majority of white Americans and white British people and white Australians show, well, let me describe this non-tendentially, they are slower when the condition is white negative and black positive 
then in the condition in which it is white positive, black negative. Why? Standard explanation is that this is supposed to be an implicit association test. We have associations between the stereotype or the concept blackness and negative items and vice versa. A, uh, association between the stereotype or the concept whiteness and positive items. Why do we have that? Well, because we're exposed to uh, media representations all the time uh, which might dispose us in that way. And this kind of association, and there's a lot of psychological evidence that something like this is true, this kind of association facilitates response. If you associate A and B, then when you think of A, your um, B, the concept B, or B-related representations are just more accessible uh, to you and you can respond more quickly. Um, probably not vice versa, you probably, it's not that uh, unrelated stimuli are inhibited, but rather um, associated stimuli are, um, are facilitated. Uh, let me describe the second uh, way of measuring implicit attitudes. Now, this is the effect misattribution procedure developed by Keith Payne. And it works like this. Again, you're, you're sitting in front of a computer. A picture flashes up on the screen. And this is a stimulus from the category of interest. Again, let's use black and white faces. Most of Payne's work has. So, you get the picture flashed up and then it's replaced by another image. This is priming. Um, priming is using a representation to uh, dispose the mind in certain directions. And priming is lots of evidence that priming works. This is supraliminal priming, by the way. Subliminal priming is uh, unconscious priming. The person isn't conscious of what they see. Nevertheless, can be shown to have an effect on how they uh, behave. This is supraliminal. They're perfectly conscious of what they see, they see, but they are told to ignore the picture. Then the unrelated picture uh, pops up. The unrelated picture has been uh, rated in independent piloting as a neutral picture. Uh, standardly, Chinese pictograms are used and uh, people who can read Chinese are excluded um, because you get all kinds of interference from the semantic meaning of the pictogram. And the task is simply to say how pleasant or unpleasant um, the pictogram is. So you rate it on a scale. And here's the uh, oft-repeated finding. We don't have anything like as much data for the effect misattribution procedure as the IOT, but nevertheless, there's a solid body of work out there. After presentation of a black face, white Americans rate the pictogram as less pleasant than after a presentation of a white face. This is described as the affect misattribution procedure. The idea is you get a kind of burst of negative 
feeling, affect, in response to seeing the picture, uh, you then misattribute, that is the picture of the face, you then misattribute that feeling to the picture, because it's still the, the second picture, you're still feeling it, and you think, well, that you implicitly think that must be the cause, and you think it's worse. I've mentioned um, white Americans. Uh, it's worth noting that a much smaller percentage, uh, but well above zero, of black Americans show the same effect on both the IAT and the um, AMP. All right, very interesting, but still, why should we care? Well, here's one reason to care. Implicit bias measured by the IAT and the AMP both correlate with direct, more direct measures of racism. So, for instance, um, an implicit bias as measured by the AMP correlates with a lower likelihood of voting for Obama in the 2008 election, even among registered Democrats. So it predicted a uh, greater unwillingness to vote for Obama. Um, it correlates with um, blaming the black community for the riots uh, that followed the acquittal of Rodney King in LA in what year was it? 2004, I think. Um, a, a, a placing more of the blame on the black community than the white. It predicted people's attitudes with regard to those riots. Uh, perhaps more worryingly, it correlates with weapon bias. Weapon bias is um, another uh, paradigm developed by Keith Payne. In the weapon bias paradigm, you're shown pictures of uh, people carrying either tools or guns, and you've shown them rapidly, and you just have to identify, like, are they carrying a gun or a tool? Um, and people who uh, show more implicit bias on the AMP are more likely to misidentify a black person holding a tool as a black person holding a gun uh, than are people who don't show such implicit bias. And that uh, may play a role in explaining um, why black people are more likely to be shot than white people. Because people with implicit biases that are uh, negative towards black people are more likely to think an uh, unarmed black person is holding a gun. And indeed, there's, there's some more direct evidence uh, for this, as measured by uh, a virtual shooting game, where uh, you're on a virtual shooting range, and your task is sh uh, people pop up rapidly. Um, I believe there are real shooting ranges that work like this. People pop up rapidly, and your task is shoot all the ones that are unarmed, and none of the ones, sorry, shoot all the ones that are armed, and none of the ones that are unarmed. Um, See how easy it is to make mistakes. Uh, people with negative implicit attitudes towards black people uh, shoot a greater number of unarmed black civilians than those who do not have negative uh, implicit attitudes towards black people. 
What's going on here? What, why would these associations or uh, misattributions of effect cause racist behavior? Well, psychologists often, many psychologists, talk about type 1 and type 2 processes. Uh, Kahneman uh, made this famous, and many of you will have read his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, I imagine. Um, type 1 processes, or system 1 processes, but uh, they don't actually form systems, so it's probably better to talk about type 1 and type 2. Type 1 processes are um, fast, automatic, effortless, and mandatory. They just work. They do their thing regardless of what the person uh, wants to occur. And we have them for good reasons, because there are a whole lot of really important situations in which uh, you have to respond more rapidly than you can if you rely on type 2 thinking, which is slow and effortful. It's the kind of thinking you use when you're doing philosophy or uh, mathematics or logic, when you're reasoning your way step by step um, through an argument. Um, is that a snake? Not a good idea to, you know, think, well, let's see. Here's the evidence in favor of it being a snake. Here's the evidence against. Uh, you may be bitten already. Uh, even better example, something's heading towards your face. You meet it, you throw your arms up, you duck. Uh, you have uh, mechanisms which take care of that. You don't think, well, is this a threat? By the time you've decided, it's too late. It's hit you. Um, so system one or type one uh, kinds of processes we have for very good reason and uh, these kinds of paradigms are designed to tap into this kind of um, representation, a system one kind of type one kind of representation. That's why you speeded response in the IAT. Um, now, it's easy to see how type 1 uh, cognition explains things like a greater propensity to shoot unarmed black people if you've got an implicit bias against black people. Uh, because that's the kind of quick response where that kind of process tends to predominate. It's a bit harder to see how it causes uh, the HR decisions, for example, the uh, greater disposition to offer interviews to white people rather than black people. Nevertheless, uh, there are plausible stories about what's going on here. Type 2 processes are never active alone. They're always, in fact, they, 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 even when we're, they're fully engaged, they probably represent a small proportion of the cognitive processes that are occurring in the person at a time. We rely on type 1 kinds of uh, mechanisms for, among other things, just to cut down the search space of possibilities. Uh, there is just an indefinitely large number of things that are relevant to all our decisions, and we rely on literally gut feelings uh, heuristics to 
bias in a non-prejudicial way now, bias our cognition to so that we attend to what's important and what isn't important. Type 1 kinds of cognition does that for us. Uh, people like Gigarenza have argued these heuristics and biases uh, actually do a great job. Um, they allow us to be rational. And there's a strong case for saying that, which isn't to say that they always allow us to be uh, rational. They always support irrationality. What we might be seeing in these kinds of cases is maladaptive type 1 cognition. Generally adaptive, but here it's maladaptive, or uh, at least it's normatively um, pernicious. It's maybe causing confabulation of criteria of merit. That's, there's some direct evidence for this. Um, of course, no, none of these HR departments are getting identical CVs. Uh, you do what's in effect a uh, between subjects design because they would pick up something weird if, you know, if both the white applicant and the black applicant had identical CVs. Instead, we're looking at responses um, across the board from many different um, HR departments um, and what may be going on is they get the CV of the white person and they see qualifications because of their gut reactions to these qualifications as more appropriate when it's in the hand of the, you know it's on the CV of the white person than when it's on the CV of the black person and there's kind of there is quite direct evidence for this all right implicit bias almost certainly causes behavior which it doesn't seem like a stretch to call racist. Uh, it causes behavior which favors white people in virtue of their race alone. That looks like um, it's racist behavior. <coughs> My question, uh, after all that long preliminary, uh, is what about the people themselves. Are they racist? Are they racist without knowing it? First let me answer, answer that question by answering the question, do they know it? So you know one uh, accusation you might level at people is well they're not racist without knowing it, because they know it. And in fact, they're being deceptive when they say, I'm not racist. And I don't mean those who say, I'm not racist, but uh, they're probably being deceptive when they say, I'm not racist. But just those who don't add the but. Are they being deceptive? Well, there is some evidence that people have at least some degree of insight into their implicit attitudes. Um, there are several studies in which this has been probed in a variety of ways. So, for example, in one study, this was not on um, implicit racism, but implicit homophobia, um, people were asked about their real feelings about gay people and also their gut reactions. And they reported different real feelings and gut reactions, their gut reactions were more negative and correlated reasonably well with their implicit attitudes. Uh, there are similar kinds of experiments on implicit racism. 
So in one experiment, uh, subjects were told that if they tried to deceive the experimenter about what they believed, they would um, be found out. In fact, they had no such method. Um, and in that experiment, the gap was between implicit and explicit attitudes was narrower than it normally is. Does this mean that people are being deceptive when they say, I'm not racist? I don't think so. I think the easiest way to see this is to think about yourself if you don't know you've got uh, biased implicit attitudes and you go and do an uh, implicit association test. Nothing changes except you acquire a bit of knowledge about yourself. So now you know you've got these attitudes, which by hypothesis you didn't know you had before. Nothing changes behaviorally. Under a wide variety of conditions, in fact, under most conditions, your explicit attitudes explain most of your behavior. So the predictive power of implicit attitudes is controversial, but on no one's story is it all that good. It explains below 0.2% of the variance in people's behavior. So more than 80% of the variance is accounted for by what people say is true of themselves. Even when you look at, uh, say, registered Democrats who didn't vote for Obama in the 2008 election, well, f f two things. First of all, most registered Democrats who had implicit biases against black people did vote for Obama. Having an implicit uh, racist attitude, if, if racist is the right word here, doesn't cause you to, uh, it doesn't overpower you. It modulates your behavior, it affects your behavior. Under certain conditions, it affects can be very significant. Um, but very often, most of the time, your explicit uh, attitudes explain most of your behavior. Most of those people did vote for Obama. Maybe they felt slightly uncomfortable about it, they did it anyway. Of those who didn't vote for Obama, these are registered Democrats, remember. They didn't vote for McCain. Instead, they didn't vote at all, or they voted for a third-party candidate. It modulates um, behavior. It doesn't take over. It doesn't, it's not in charge. Explicit attitudes explain most of the variance in behavior. They have much better predictive power than implicit attitudes. So knowing the content of your attitudes doesn't alter the fact that uh, under most conditions, when you've got time to engage type two kinds of mechanisms, when you can deliberate, um, when you can engage in effortful processing, under those conditions, your explicit beliefs are going to do almost all the explanatory work. They will be modulated uh, by uh, your implicit attitudes. And when things are evenly poised, um, then they may actually make a significant dif difference. You know, if you've got two final applicants, one white, one black, you might choose the white one, even though um, you've got non-racist explicit beliefs. But 
only if things are so evenly poised that the relatively small influence of your implicit attitude can tip the balance. Yeah. It's an academic job. One's got a uh, PhD and great publications, and the other one's nearly finished their undergraduate. Your uh, implicit uh, attitudes are not going to overcome your explicit processing. Um, that's a, you know, a, a very dramatic disparity, but the disparity has to be tiny before it's going to uh, flip the balance in favor of the white candidate. Over many decisions, that's going to make a difference. So I'm not saying we don't need to worry about it. I am saying this causes racist behaviors, it causes racist outcomes, it causes racist incidents in every black person's life, very plausibly, because they have thousands and thousands of interactions across their life. And some of those will be significant. Um, but you know, you're going to have to look at population-wide effects to identify a really significant effect, generally speaking. So I don't think that knowing we have these attitudes makes it the case that we're being hypocritical. Hypocrisy is one thing, but what about truth? You know, you can be perfectly sincere in saying I'm not racist, but you can be wrong. So are we wrong in saying we're not racist? Here's a tempting story. Um, the answer to the question, are you racist, is no. You, let's take you at your word. Uh, you said you're not. We believe you. You're being sincere by hypothesis. No. But on the other hand, it's also yes, because you've got these implicit uh, attitudes. So, no and yes. Equal weight to both. I don't think that is the right story, or at least it's very, it's very far from clear. And on most views, we should accept a story like that. There are three models of racism, um, three standard models of racism. There's a doxastic model, an effective model, and a behavioral model. The doxastic model is a, about belief. A racist is a person with racist beliefs. A effective model is about feelings. A racist is a um, person who has racist feelings. And a behavioral model is about how people behave. Racist is as racist does. Um, let me start with the doxastic model. So inquiring into whether we should say, yes, racist, and no, not racist, you know, e equal weight to both, depends on whether implicit attitudes are beliefs. I don't think they are. On the standard model, an implicit attitude is an association. Let's remember the implicit association test. It's a bit like your association between salt and pepper. Why do you have such an, associ such an association? Well, they've been paired often in your learning history. The salt and pepper is put on the table. You buy a salt and pepper shaker to, together. People have this phrase, would you like salt and pepper? So you learn to pair them, but you don't have a belief that salt is pepper. Uh, beliefs are uh, inferentially promiscuous in uh, the phrase of Stephen Stitch. They are states that enter into inferential relations with one another in a systematic and broad way. 
so that you can infer from two beliefs uh, to a third belief and you can infer from belief-desire pairs to conclusions. You know, I want to uh, stay dry, it is raining, therefore um, I should take an umbrella. And beliefs are evidence-sensitive. Evidence against the belief weakens the belief and often causes the person to abandon it. Associations are none of those things. Uh, your association between salt and pepper isn't wrong if there's salt and no pepper. You're perfectly entitled to it, normatively entitled to associate them uh, in any case. And it's not even evidence against it. It shouldn't cause you to weaken the association. Um, nor could, does it engage in any kind of inference. Now, I am convinced that the associative story isn't correct for implicit attitudes. I've been convinced by um, a philosopher called uh, Eric Mandelbaum, who used to be here, uh, as well as a psychologist called Jan de Hover, who together have been running this line that implicit attitudes are not mere associations. Mandelbaum says, in fact, they're unconscious beliefs. And he's got lots of evidence for this. Basically, he goes through the published data and says, look at what's going on. You can't explain all this associatively. Um, I'll just give you one example. The phenomenon of celebrity contagion. Now, that phenomenon can be explained associatively very well. Here's um, an example of celebrity contagion, real experiment. People have positive implicit attitudes towards celebrities. In particular, this group of, uh, of uh, subjects turned out to have positive implicit attitudes towards George Clooney. Now, this has effects on cognition, as you'd expect. So in the experiment, they were asked how much they'd be willing to pay for a jumper that George Clooney had worn. And the answer is somewhat more than a control group would be willing to pay for the new jumper. So that's a nice associative effect. You know, the Clooney magic rubs off onto the jumper. You can tell a very neat associative story about that. So far, so good for associative story. But here's what, what's a lot harder to explain. A third group of subjects were told that in between the time that Clooney wore uh, the jumper and it coming up for sale, it had been laundered. And they weren't willing to pay as much for it as the second group who just told you know, Clooney had worn it. So, the Clooney magic, it turns out, can be washed out. <laughs> now, that maybe look a little associative, but it's very hard to explain the flip of valence here, because people have positive implicit attitudes towards uh, laundry. Maybe not doing it, but the fact of uh, laundry, you know, cleanliness being next to godliness and all that. And Mandelbaum says what you, you need to explain what's going on here is a little bit of unconscious inference. Washing uh, something causes its magic to be washed out. And that's that kind of flip of valence from two positive things to a negative thing doesn't look like it can be explained 
associatively. And he's got lots of other pieces of evidence for this, which I don't have time to go, to go through now. I think he's right. I think implicit attitudes are not mere associations. But it doesn't follow that they are, as he concludes, beliefs. Remember, beliefs are inferentially promiscuous and evidence-sensitive. They enter into inferential relations broadly and systematically. And implicit attitudes just don't. They just don't. They enter into some inferential relations, but they often fail to engage inferentially. Uh, and they fail to engage with evidence. I'll just give you um, a couple of pieces of evidence. Uh, first one's an example of responding to what shouldn't be evidence. So Han et al. Uh, induced um, positive implicit attitudes in a group of children to Pokemon characters. Um, it's quite easy to induce implicit attitudes to arbitrary things, people that people have no antecedent attitude to them. You just give them, uh, you know, tell them a bunch of stuff about them. And if you valence it all, you know, tell them a bunch of positive things about this po these Pokemon characters and they end up with positive implicit attitudes. It takes five minutes, literally. So having induced positive implicit attitudes towards these Pokemon characters in the children, the children were then shown a video of other children and they were told the children are going to lie about the Pokemon characters. And they watched this video of the children saying negative things about the Pokemon characters. And then their explicit beliefs were measured, as ought to happen, because they've just, bunch, they've just listened to what they have every reason to believe is a bunch of lies, their explicit beliefs didn't change. You know, if I say um, there's, a, there's an elephant at the back of the room, maybe you turn around, but if I say it's a lie, there's an elephant at the back of the room, presumably you're not going to conclude there is an elephant at the back of the room. Um, but their implicit views became significantly more negative. They responded to what wasn't evidence at all. Here's the second piece of evidence. This is um, implicit attitudes failing to respond to evidence. This is Greg Sipes and Benaji. They induced um, implicit attitudes to uh, arbitrary groups. They said, group A did all these great things. Group A did this, this wonderful thing, and they did this, this wonderful thing. On the other hand, group B did all these terrible things. Five minutes on each group. Um, that, that manipulation can be expected to produce implicit attitudes towards group A and group B, neg uh, positive and negative, uh, respectively. Then they said, oh my god, I'm sorry. We got that completely wrong. All that great stuff we said group A did, it was group B that did that. And all that terrible stuff we said Group B did, actually Group A did that. You know, sorry for the mix-up. Uh, completely um, our fault. Uh, let's go on with the experiment anyway. Social psychologists lie to their subjects all the time. Um, then they measured their implicit attitudes. Telling people about the mix-up flips um, explicit beliefs instantly. And that's, that's not a surprise. You ask me for directions, uh, I say, you know, you turn left at the corner, and then I say, I'm sorry, uh, not left, I meant right. You conclude, I should turn right. Left was a mistake. And you turn right when you get there, if you believe me. 
uh, if you think I'm sincere. The explicit beliefs followed that pattern. But the implicit beliefs, or implicit attitudes, shifted not at all. Um, being told there was a mix-up wasn't evidence that the relevant systems were capable of responding to. And finally, um, if you just think about the primes and stimuli used in implicit uh, attitude measurement paradigms, uh, it's very hard to tell an inferential story about uh, the association between flower and white person, or cancer and black person. It's very hard to see that as a bit of unconscious inference. It does look associational. Um, t telling such a story um, uh, for the full range of, of stimuli which uh, you know, robustly produce this kind of effect really doesn't look at all a, a, um, an enterprise with uh, any good prospect of success. So I'm convinced that implicit attitudes are not associations, but I'm also convinced they're not beliefs. What are they? Well, there's something in between. They've got some of the propositional structure of beliefs, and that is explained why they engage in some kind of inferential processes. But they've only got some of it. So what should we say on the doxastic model? Well, people, people we're concerned with, me, have sincere, explicit, non-racist, anti-racist beliefs. So am I racist? On that basis, I think we should say a resounding no. But they also have these in-between states, which are not mere associations, but they're not beliefs either. There's something in between. On the doxastic model, maybe that means that they, I don't get a resounding yes, as I would if uh, they were unconscious beliefs, but I don't get off completely either. So maybe the answer is, no, I'm not racist, and maybe a little. Um, let me very quickly uh, go through the other two models of racism. The behavioral model. I think we can say something quite similar, actually, about the behavioral model. But now, not on the basis of the structures of the attitudes involved, but on the basis of the predictive power of the attitudes. May well be that the one explains the other. The predictive power of explicit attitudes is explained by its propositional structure, and the low predictive power of implicit attitudes is explained by its relative lack of structure. But in any case, however that uh, turns out to be, it's still true that the great majority of my behavior is explained and predicted by my explicit uh, attitudes and only relatively little of it by my implicit attitudes. So again, I think we should say the same thing. Am I racist? No. And maybe a little. The effective model of racism is the one on which I think there is strongest grounds for saying, yes, I'm racist. Things are complicated here, and I don't think we've got enough data. Affects are paradigm type one kinds of processes. They are triggered automatically. So it doesn't matter uh, what you want to feel if you're, um, if you're 
have vertigo and you're on the edge of a cliff, you feel fear. It's triggered automatically. If it's a virtual cliff and you can't fall, uh, you probably have the same effective response in any case. Um, and there is good evidence that people do feel a degree of discomfort correlated with implicit bias. So to that extent, maybe there is a case for more of a yes answer on the effective model. However, I don't think that's the end of the story because people also feel affects in line with their explicit attitudes. Those explicit attitudes produce automatic processes which are themselves um, correlated with the explicit attitudes and have a matching valence. So for example, the explicit racist, sorry, the explicit non-racist, implicit racist probably feels indignant on watching those videos that I mentioned at the beginning. Racial injustice causes appropriate effect in me. So on the effective model, I'm not sure what to say. Uh, but there's a stronger grounds, I think, than on the behavioral and the doxastic model for answering yes to the question, am I racist? Which of the models is true? Uh, there's a debate in the philosophical literature on which model we should adopt. I'm by no means an expert here, and what I have to say may be quite naive, but my gut feeling here is it's a debate not worth having, that um, we shouldn't be choosing between them, that um, together they constitute what it is uh, to be racist. Um, I haven't seen data on this. My guess is if you ask ordinary people uh, for their judgments on is somebody racist and you describe them in enough detail uh, to be able to probe these things, my guess is racist beliefs and racist behaviours would explain most of the variance and racist feelings less but not zero of the variance, but I'm not sure about that. Assume we give them equal weight. Then the answer to the question, is the implicit racist genuinely racist, um, is going to be you know, the weighted average of the three, well, the equal weighting. And the answer is going to be no, and less strongly, maybe yes as well. All right, I'll leave it there. Next week I'll talk about whether you're responsible for having these attitudes, for changing them and for actions which they uh, influence or cause. Thank you. <laughs>